Welcome to The Yarn, a school library journal production. I'm Colby Sharp. Back in June at the American Library Association's annual conference, Travis Yonker and I interviewed Kate DiCamillo in front of a rowdy group of librarians. Where you're listening to today is part two of the interview. If you'd like to go back and listen to part one, check out our blog, blogs.slj.com slash the yarn. At the end of this episode, we have some bonus content. Listening Library has provided us with the first chapter of the Ramey Nightingale audiobook. Jenna, la mia, totally crushes the audio. Check it out. All right, let's get to Kate. It's time to unravel Ramey Nightingale. So who did you work closely with on on Ramey, for instance, um, is it just you and your editor, or do you show your work to other people? How does that go? Um, I, I am very fortunate in that I have a group of friends who um, are wonderful readers for me. Some of them are writers, and some of them aren't. Um, my best friend that I grew up with is one of my first readers, and um, she is a truth teller. And um, so I, I start with her and a couple of other friends, and with Ramey in particular, there's uh, Julie Schumacher, who um, lives in Minnesota, was a, an early reader that helped me to start strip away all those sentences, those trapdoor sentences, and she was critical to this one. And then it goes to Andrea Tampa, my editor, who then, it, it always goes this way, you know, um, then you get, you know, your eight to ten um, page single-spaced um, letter back that makes you walk around the house for a day muttering under your breath, you know? If you know so much, why don't you write a novel? That kind of thing, you know? And then I calm down and I, I start to look at the letter with a little, you know, a less angry eye and I, I start, well, I could do this, I could do this, I could, it's always fear. It's, I'm, I'm afraid that I can't do it, so. Do you, is it a finished book before you start showing it? As far as, do you, you know, is it, finished start to end or do you show individual chapters or um it is general it's finished for me so i know what's going to happen um but i will sometimes show it in chunks to to people um that i really trust but i have to know what's going to happen before i show it to them what's the most one of your books has changed from when you were done until someone else got it what so from the editor so from which one has changed the most from when I turned it into once I've gotten through the editorial process? From when you were done that first, when you started showing it to the first person. That is a really interesting question, and I've never been asked it before. I think that probably, yeah, good job, Colby. Yeah. <laughs> I went for a longer embrace there. I'm still working. Travis is a very good student, <laughs> just struggling with hugs. Um, probably, probably Despero. And, and this could, again, be borne out by going through all the rough drafts at, at the Curlin, but I think Despero it was a real struggle, and, um, and it just, it, the, the structure of it, if I could redo it, I would probably redo the structure now because I know a little bit more, but that is the one that changed the most. So um, a couple months back, we interviewed Gary D. Schmidt. Yeah. And, um, he's, he's fantastic. He's a great I've guy. I've heard him lecture. Yeah. 
His, have you heard him lecture? Um, I Edit that out. I've not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've not heard him lecture, but I would love to hear him yeah. lecture. Um, and he was talking about his process, and your name came up. And he, and he was thinking that um, you were someone where you would write a first draft and, and then sort of go back to the beginning, not necessarily using that first draft and kind of rewrite from there. So what's, what's your process as far as that goes? Yeah. Um, I, I love talking about process. Um, and you, you might have to tell me to shut up or just edit it out. But this is what I do. I write a complete rough first draft, which is um, like almost not readable. And I don't, I don't um, pay any attention to punctuation spelling. I'll talk to myself in it to talk myself through it. Like and you'll, then, you'll type out your talking that yep, you're doing? I will. It's very much like Jack Nicholas and The Shining. That's kind of what it's like. It's, and you can go and look at it, you know, at the, at the Curlin. It's true. So then I print that up, and then I feel like I have a rough map, and so I'm a little bit calmer, right? And then I put that to the left, that printed thing to the left of the computer. At least two weeks, ideally a month later, I, I let it sit and marinate in my subconscious, right? And then I start to retype a second draft, um, and I work from that first draft, but not in any way religiously, but it's there, and it's there as a comfort. And then I pen, print up that second draft. I let it marinate. I put it here. I retype because there's... I cannot... I, everybody writes differently, but it is much more organic if you go in there and, and retype because everything is then a, an organic hole in your head to go back and, and it's so tempting with computers to just, I'm going to change this and change this, but everything's connected. It's like a spider web. And, you, and so it, what one change affects everything. So I just, I keep on retyping until I get to like the fifth draft and that's where the friends come in as readers. And then usually Andrea gets the sixth draft, my editor. Um, so during that marination period you're talking about, is that when you're working on other, like, smaller projects? Right. Then, then I, I haul out that pig, you know, <laughs> to cheer me up. And, um, and, yes, and it's so much fun to work on, you know, a story um, where nobody learns anything, you know, because mercy just remains a pig, an unrepentant pig, you know. So have you been reading anything good lately? Right before I got here, I finished um, Ann Patchett's uh, new novel, which is going to come out, I think, in October. I had a galley of that Commonwealth, and I loved it. Um, for kids, uh, I read The Wild Robot and just thought it was divine. Do you all both like it? Love that. Yeah, yeah. I was just... So, and I just, you know, read with, like, three or four different parts of myself that book. Like, how's he going to do it? you know, and also the kid in me. And um, then, like, man, I wish I could illustrate, you know, because, yeah, that's brilliant. Do you like to draw? I like to draw, but no one says, wow, that's good. So, you know, I do it for myself. Do you draw? I draw for myself, yeah. That's fun. Yeah, with colored pencils. I really like a colored pencil. They cheer me up, Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you have, like, favorite colored pencil, like, brand? Or just, like, Crayola? Do you like There's fancy some ones? really high-end watercolor uh, pencils that somebody got me for my birthday that I'm very smitten with. And I, I, I'm good, I'm, I think they're, like, 
outrageously expensive. I haven't gone to investigate, but right now I'm wearing them down to a nub. Yeah. If you're looking for gift ideas for cake, yeah, for I'll take a colored pencil. <laughs> yeah. Colored pencils. Yeah. So, why write for kids? Why not write for grown-ups? Why write books for kids? Do do I have time to give the complete answer? So uh, I decided that I wanted to be a writer. That I'm not going to go into how that happened, but so right after I started writing, and I started where I think a lot of people start, I started writing short stories, thinking they're short, therefore they're easier, which is not at all correct, right? And um, I got a job, that job in the book warehouse in Minnesota, and um, I was assigned to the third floor, and the third floor was all children's books. And I entered into that job with a bias that I think most adult readers have, which is, um, you know, oh, children's books, you know, duckies, bunnies, whatever. So, but I, my job on, in that warehouse was to be a picker. I would go around and fill orders, pulling the books off the shelves. And um, it was only a matter of time being a reader that I started to read what I was picking, sometimes on the clock, but that's they're out of business, so it doesn't make any difference now. They can't, they can't not, not hire me back. Yeah, um, and I read uh, Christopher Paul Curtis's *The Watsons Go to Birmingham*, 1963, and I thought I want to try to do something like this. So I took that book home and I typed up a chapter to figure out how long would a children's book be in manuscript and what would a chapter feel like? And um, pretty soon after that, I started Because of Winn-Dixie. And, um, and I figured out relatively early on in, uh, after Winn-Dixie came out that this was where I belonged um, and that this was the form that I wanted. The middle grade novel um, is where I need to be. And you know, you know how the world is. It's like sometimes people say, you know, it's like you're, it's like the, these books are like, I, I've got training wheels on and then I'm going to get rid of them at some point and write for adults. But I, this is what I need to be doing. And I've been very fortunate in that a lot of adults um, now have found their way to children's books. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to grow up and be somebody who writes for adults because that's what people think. Oh, that's what you're doing in the meantime. This is it. This is where I need to be. This is exactly what I need to be doing. Yeah. So, what, what do you think it is about middle grade that makes it kind of your home? Um, I think it's probably something that um, is related to uh, a quote of Catherine Patterson's, which I can only paraphrase, that, um, and, and that I found this dictum, I found my way to this dictum instinctually, which she says, when you write for kids, you're duty-bound to end with hope. And I like that, I mean, I absorb that somehow it makes me a different kind of writer and a different kind of person. If you read the uh, short stories that I've written for adults and that have been published here and there in literary journals, they are not as hopeful. They're much darker. And so it's that, the necessity of hope. And also um, kind of what I think of as peripheral magic. You know, it's not, it doesn't have to be literal magic, but things are still possible. Uh, when you write for kids. And adults close a lot of doors, I think. So, It's time for the speed round. Do, does the audience get involved in the speed round, or is it just me up here by myself? It's just you. Okay. Okay, are you ready? All right. We'll Who do I look at? Okay. Flex your toes. Do I, 
Do I have to close my Isolate eyes? Isolate your... Okay. Okay. Okay, so a couple weeks back, the, for the first couple of speed round questions, I was in my car and question inspiration struck. And I've learned from doing a podcast that when question inspiration strikes, you t press record. Right. So this should work. I have the first uh, couple speed round questions. This is me in my uh, Toyota RAV4 dri <laughs> driving to work to school in the morning. You're going to love this first question. <laughs> I'm afraid. Okay. Okay, I hope that this is recording. It looks like it is. All right, this is questions for Kate D. Camillo. First question, what is your favorite curse word? She's in the studio. Things aren't in her, in her office. Things aren't working out the way that she wants with the book. She's getting interrupted. Favorite curse word? A hint? Oh, no. You're not, you're not trapping me there. <laughs> no. Okay, let's move on to question two then. All right, yeah. We've got a few of these. Also, I want to know what her favorite snack is when she's working on her books. Favorite snack. Okay, that one's easy. It's, it's not what I let myself eat, but, like, I always think if, if I just... I love spicy Cheetos. I'm sorry. Those, like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and sometimes as a reward after I've gotten something through, I mean, it's not like I'm sitting there while, while I'm writing, but like sometimes when I finish something, I will go over to the neighbor's house and they know how much I love them. And then I'll wake up the next morning and I'll go, God, what kind of disease do I have? <laughs> and I'll realize that it's the orange dye that is all the way underneath my fingernail. I love them. Yeah, they're not good for you probably, but... I think every school visit you do from now on, there'll be a gift basket from the librarian with spicy Cheetos and colored pencils. Well, you know, I, and I have to say, when I went you know, with Winn-Dixie, people always say, when you were a kid, did you dream that you would find a dog in the grocery store? And I was like, no. When I'm a kid, I dreamed that I would get locked in the grocery store overnight and I could eat all the Cheetos because my mother would never buy them for me. You know, that was my dream. Yeah. It's like, you don't need those. But it's when like, you yes, sell millions of copies of Winn-Dixie, you can buy as many Cheetos as you want. <laughs> right, but then other problems, you know, like the fact that your hands are permanently orange, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, one more recorded speed round question. Then we have a few, couple others. Um, and this is one where you have to choose. I'm, I'm going to list three things and you have to choose. Coffee, tea, booze. Oh, that's so easy. Coffee. I mean, there's no meaning to life without coffee. Just like there's no meaning to life without dogs or books. Yeah. Tell me your coffee routine in the morning. Um, like, how do you brew it? What do you, how do you drink it? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I love coffee and I'm very serious about it, but I'm also, I love the luxury of uh, it waking me up. So it's, um, it's a, you know, Cuisinart that you can set. Um, yeah, so I smell the coffee coming and set for 5.30 and I come down and pour myself a cup of coffee and it seems very luxurious, yeah, to have it made for you. I do the same. I, I set the timer. And what time do you set the timer for? 5.50 a.m. 5.50? Five, five, 5.50. Five, so I'm up 20 minutes before you. Oh, man. I need to change. I need to... <laughs> but you're in Michigan, so you might oh, still be true. up before me because you're on Eastern time, right? Eastern time. Yeah, yep. you're beating me up. Um... Was it hard to write about Florida while living in Minnesota? No, it was easier to write about Florida while living in Minnesota. It's the Hemingway quote, you know, maybe away from Paris, I could write about Paris. Away from Claremont, I could write about Claremont. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. I never would have 
been able to write Winn-Dixie if I hadn't left home. What are you thinking, Colby? Are you judging me? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like, it was this. <laughs> I'm, I just, that's interesting. Why do you think that is? <laughs> Not that, why, why do you think you have to leave to write about that place? Oh, why, oh, I thought, why do I think that you're judging me? That's, that's a much harder question to answer. Um, I don't know. I think that to, you, you need a physical distance to go to, you need, it's like, um, Re- inversely proportional. You can get more close emotionally if you're geographically distant, yeah. I think. What's a book character you'd like to hang out with? Huh. We can edit any, this out. Yeah. Any character that I want? Yeah. Wow. Probably Ribsy, sorry. <laughs> I, love, I love Beverly Cleary's Ribsy. I love that dog. If you could go anywhere in the world after ALA, where would it be? You know, I was doing one of those interviews um, with, you know, where a kid is interviewing you for uh, a kid newspaper, and it was like, what's your ideal vacation? Where would, you know, and I gave, I said, my ideal vacation would be to wake up at home and have somebody magically appear in front of me with a cup of coffee and then just as magically disappear. (laughs) And I really miscalculated by saying this to a kid. And she's like, oh, um, but wouldn't you want to go to Paris? And it's like, yeah, put Paris down. Yeah. (laughs) But what I really want is somebody to hand me a cup of coffee and then go away. Yeah. What's the biggest misconception someone has about you or maybe one of your books? That's that's not really speed round, sorry. What's the biggest misconception? Um, I don't know because, uh, mercifully, I don't know what people think of me. Um, I I haven't Googled myself now for like nine and a half years and has been blissful. Yeah, it's just... uh, So, I don't know. I think that maybe... Well, I don't know. What do people think of me? You thought I was tall. It's funny because I, um, I was in Walgreens at, at home like six months ago, and some lady said, aren't you Katie Camello? And I said, yes, I, yes, I am. And she said, but your stories are so tall. And, um, and so that's nice. Uh, yeah. I, it, it has been very beneficial to be short in this world because as my mother always told me, it's really lucky that you're small. Otherwise, people will be beating you up for your mouth all the time. Yeah, because I was kind of a sarcastic kid. So it's, it's been great to be small. I've never complained about that. But. So this is such a selfish question. Um, so you're often cited at being, as being able to come up with great character names. My kids have a goldfish at home. They named it Goldie, but it doesn't have a middle name. Eudora. Eudora. Yeah. That's a great middle name right? for a goldfish. Right? Eudora. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And it's almost like I'm a savant. I, this, I, this, <laughs> this, this makes me wish that my wife and I were, were pregnant right now so, we could, <laughs> so I could ask that question, really make this name count. Colby, is that any, anything on the way anything for you? Anything you want named? Yeah. <laughs> Eudora. <laughs> mm. 
Thank you to Philip Seastead for creating our theme music. Thank you, Candlewick Press, especially Andy Krasik for making this interview happen. And thank you, Kate DiCamillo, for being a person. <laughs> thank you all for coming. dress, the one who was standing right next to Raimi, let out a sob and said, The more I think about it, the more terrified I am. I am too terrified to go on. The girl clutched her baton to her chest and dropped to her knees. Raimi stared at her in wonder and admiration. She herself often felt too terrified to go on but she had never admitted it out loud. The girl in the pink dress moaned and toppled over sideways. Her eyes fluttered closed. She was silent. And then she opened her eyes very wide and shouted, Archie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I betrayed you. She closed her eyes again. Her mouth fell open. Raimi had never seen or heard anything like it. I'm sorry, Raimi whispered. I betrayed you. For some reason, the words seemed worth repeating. Stop this nonsense immediately, said Ida Nee. Ida Nee was the baton-twirling instructor. Even though she was old, over fifty at least, her hair was an extremely bright yellow. She wore white boots that came all the way up to her knees. I'm not kidding, said Idany. Raimi believed her. Idany didn't seem like much of a kidder. The sun was way, way up in the sky, and the whole thing was like high noon in a western. But it was not a western. It was baton twirling lessons at Idany's house in Idany's backyard. It was the summer of 1975. It was the fifth day of June. And two days before, on the third day of June, Ramey Clark's father had run away from home with a woman who was a dental hygienist. Hey, diddle, diddle, the dish ran away with the spoon. Those were the words that went through Ramey's head every time she thought about her father and the dental hygienist. But she did not say the words out loud anymore because Raimi's mother was very upset, and talking about dishes and spoons running away together was not appropriate. It was actually a great tragedy, what had happened. That was what Raimi's mother said. This is a great tragedy, said Raimi's mother. Quit reciting nursery rhymes. It was a great tragedy because Raimi's father had disgraced himself. It was also a great tragedy because Raimi was now fatherless. The thought of that, the fact of it, that she, Raimi Clark, 
was without a father made a small, sharp pain shoot through Raimi's heart every time she considered it. Sometimes the pain in her heart made her feel too terrified to go on. Sometimes it made her want to drop to her knees. But then she would remember that she had a plan.